excited? Yeah, all right. Make sure you're speaking to that mic. So welcome to a special edition of Clerically Speaking. Producer Nick is in Argentina. He's in Nicaragua. He's in China. He's somewhere else. So there is no producer Nick. There's only producer Father Anthony this time. But if you want to hear producer Nick and Father Harrison rip apart this podcast, then you can go to patreon.com slash clerically speaking to get the special Nick producer podcast where he talks about the last week's podcast. But I am here, not alone. I am here with the non-Twitter priests. Those exist. Actually, most good priests aren't on Twitter. (laughs) Father Brendan, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm well, Father Anthony. Good to be with you. So before we get started, Father Brendan, tell us a little about who who are you? Why, Why are you here? Well, they couldn't find anybody else, and so Father Anthony and I lived together, and so he grabbed me like two minutes ago, actually. Um, no, I guess uh, as a newly ordained priest, I suppose I have something perhaps interesting to say. You know what? Hold that thought. Let's see if you have anything interesting to say about Twitter. It's time for the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. So, Father Brennan, you've, you've never listened to this podcast? I have not, no. Excellent. So, for your information and for anyone who's listening for the first time, the Summa Theologica was St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology, and the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found on Twitter. Now, normally, the other host would pick tweets to talk about, but I'm just going to give you the tweets you're going to talk about. Throw them out here. Okay, cool. Let's see what we got going on. Oh, let's start off with something easy. This is from Orden Aaron Time at Aaron Ninety, and she says pineapple on pizza is good. Father Brendan Dawson, your thoughts? I suppose we're in the charity business, and so I have to allow that kind of uh, comment to to be out there. There are worse things that we find on Twitter. In all charity, I disagree with that. I'm a simple pepperoni kind of guy. I love pineapple, but I love pizza, but I like them separate. Beautiful. Now, you obviously have to listen to the podcast because feel free to tear these things apart. <laughs> just rip them apart. This is a stupid, dumb idea. <laughs> Excellent. It's just, no, just just pizza. Calm down with this pineapple on pizza thing. I am, I'm not in favor Pineapple's of it. Pineapple's so great. It doesn't need pizza. Right. Pizza's just, so great. It doesn't need pineapple. Some things are meant to be separate, and that's okay. I agree. Right. Okay. Let's see what else we got. Now that you're all warmed up. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get into something a little spicier. So Catholic News Agency tweeted uh, out this story. The Superior General of the Society of Jesus said this week that the devil is a symbol, not a person. Father Brendan Dawson, do you believe in the devil? I believe in the devil. Um, I believe in the devil because the church teaches that we should believe in the devil. I believe in the devil because the Lord Jesus tells us we're constantly in warfare against him. And so um, I think the greatest weapon that the devil has is for people not to believe in him. 
because if you don't have to fear him, if there's nothing to fear, then he can really catch you. And so I think that kind of language is very dangerous and very um, perhaps well-intentioned, but I, I think there's a misplaced compassion, maybe a misplaced understanding of what evil really is, and that the devil is not merely a symbol, but that he truly, along with his other uh, fallen angels, seek, like scripture tells us, like a prowling lion, to tear souls apart and to devour them. And so we have to be on battle, or on guard, on battle against him. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's, this is something that seems like pop up every once in a while. I think this is the second time I might be wrong. Listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, that the superior general of the Jesuits said that Satan is a symbolic reality. Every once in a while, this, this kind of thing pops up. I totally get, I totally get the desire not to want to see Satan around every corner. And this is where I think St. Ignatius of Loyola, his definitions are very helpful. So he just usually talks about the enemy, which is a good kind of catch-all term. Because sometimes you're tempted to sin because of the devil and his angels. They're allowed to suggest ideas to us. So sometimes that happens. Sometimes it happens just because of our own concupiscence or whatever. Or sometimes it's just kind of like the spirit of the world kind of attacking us. We, we live in a fallen world that tends toward um, lesser goods over higher goods. But the way saying this just says the enemy, I think is a good way of acknowledging that we're at warfare, but without giving the devil too much credit, he's definitely in there. But I think it's a good way to kind of balance that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's important for us always to remember while the devil and the evil spirits are real, God is far more powerful than any of them. Right. And so when we feel as though they're creeping into our lives or suggesting these sins or kind of dragging us down, we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and Satan runs from that name. Today is the queenship of Mary, the Blessed Mother. You know, we always see her, you know, stepping on the head of Satan. Just call upon the name of Jesus. Call upon our Blessed Mother, and they will truly show show us the path forward. Yeah, and we had a whole we had a whole episode about spooky stuff on the podcast uh, months ago. I think it was one of our earlier episodes. But like in our diocese, there are priests who are exorcists. There are priests sure. who are experts in this. And I think more and more this teaching is i think it's slowly coming back into seminary formation or at least in teaching at least in our diocese i know our bishop has been pretty supportive of this ministry because it's a necessary thing most of the time it's not like a full-on possession thing but evil is at work and sometimes you need people with this kind of personal holiness as well as expertise in the subject to kind of handle these sort of things so it's it's a real thing absolutely Mm -hmm. this is from producer nick (laughs) and i'm sure he'll get a thrill of reading one of his tweets excellent and he says this if you, a stranger, initiate conversation with me, Nick Sharapa, in an airport, beware. I will talk to you about Jesus. Muhahahaha. Would you talk to Nick Sharapa in an airport? I wouldn't t- talk to Nick Sharapa <laughs> in an airport, on a plane, in a train. No, I think Nick Sharapa is a wonderful uh, witness to the love of Christ. I think he's the kind of person who could talk in a disarming way, not kind of beat you over the head, but somebody who... I would feel comfortable talking to if I didn't know him. I do know him, and so I wouldn't. But <laughs> if I didn't know him, I think I think it'd be great. <laughs> uh, so you've uh, I mean, you, you've been in a priest for how long now? So it has been not quite two months, almost two months. Okay, uh, but you were wearing clerics in seminary, right? Correct. Have you traveled with your clerics before? I have. I always kind of felt like in seminary about weird about wearing clerics, not because I was worried about people like harassing me, but I always felt like uh, false advertising because if somebody ran up like really needing a priest and I'm like, uh, I can't actually hear your confession or something. Yeah. Um, so but I, I, I have worn clerics and as a priest, I typically wear them. Um, usually on my day off, I just kind of chill at home. And so I don't. But 
I, I think it's an important witness. And I understand why, you know, there are appropriate times not to wear clerics in public. But I think being a witness for people to see a priest, one, if they need a priest, but right. also you could be, my mom always loved this saying that you might be the only gospel that somebody ever reads. You might be the only encounter with something divine that somebody sees, even if they never come up to you. And if they just see a priest or likewise a religious sister, perhaps dressed, you know, in a habit or a veil or something like that, it's an opportunity to maybe without even knowing it, plant a seed and for people to say like, hey, there is still something otherworldly in this uh, in this life. And there are a few people, you know, quite a few people actually, but that have dedicated their lives to, to yeah. leading us to that. So that's how I feel about clerics in public. No, it's excellent. And now, so this is, this is an audio format, True. but the collar you're wearing, it might be different than what other priests wear. Describe the collar you're wearing. Correct. So those of Father Anthony's uh, followers and fans uh, who are related somehow to the theological college community, of which I'm also a part, would understand it when I refer to this as the Father Thayer collar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Father Thayer was one of the Sulpician priests at TC where Father Anthony and I were educated. And um, it's it's kind of a full just white collar. It's not There's not like the black that you might see on a typical Roman collar or collarette. I often get that question. I just kind of look like the look of it. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's as simple as that. Um, I It's not necessarily an homage to Father Thayer, though I very much admire him. But I always just kind of like the look. And in some ways, it's a conversation piece. And just like clerics in public, these particular ones, it's maybe an opportunity for somebody to ask a question and start a, a deeper dialogue. So. Yeah, I, I think people don't realize that there are various options for clerical work. Yeah, it's a legitimate option, but people don't see it too much. Right. Yeah. So, like, I'm wearing, like, the kind of classic uh, tabby. So it's what you normally think of when you think of your regular parish priest. It's a shirt, a white tab goes into the collar. You know what that looks like. But I've got this fancy microfiber shirt. Mm, it's wonderful. Very fancy. Uh, seminarian Jeff Craig from the Diocese of Pittsburgh introduced me to these shirts. They're a little more expensive, but you can throw them in the wash. They don't fade. Love it. But you can also wear a, a clerical vest. And that's very fancy because you can wear French cuffs with that. Absolutely. You can wear the cassock, of course. We've talked about the cassock before on the uh, podcast. There's all kinds of stuff. So you do have options as a priest. If if the one thing that was keeping you from the priesthood was options in clerical wear, one, you need to get your priorities straight. But two, <laughs> but two, there are different options. So there you go. Yeah, and I think just as God calls each one of us as individuals to any vocation, but priests in particular, you know, there might be a, a particular look that just a kind of appeals to you and just be an individual within appropriate bounds, but we're all called to be who God's created us to be, and so yeah, there's room uh, for each one. Of I them. think that's good because we all, I mean, I, I'm not gonna say anybody, but there's sometimes the priests who you kind of get the feeling are trying a little too hard to get noticed, and that's right. kind of not what we're about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we're gonna do a quick sound check because I want to make sure this is going well. Alrighty, things are sounding okay. Hopefully, producer Nick approves. This is from a Brevis Posilitum. You guys, your Twitter names. This is from at night of, night of Matt Majin. At night of Majin. We've read your tweets before, but she says this: "Hello, no sin gang." Oh, quick terminology thing. Mm. So when you're on the internet, you learn to like speak in internet speak oh. and have you heard of of memes before i know about memes <laughs> good okay so the no sin gang is basically after you go to confession you're a part of the no sin gang gotcha right okay so there's that hello no sin gang father scolded me for not knowing the act of contrition by heart me i've only been catholic for two years i apologize father 
That's enough time to learn it by heart, isn't it? Me. Yes, Father. What do you think of this interaction? Wow. Yeah, um, right? I think he's kind of doing it wrong. I, you know, just as a newly ordained priest, but having gone to confession my whole life, yeah, sometimes you do need a little bit of, you know, the priest to be a little bit firm, but ultimately he is the agent of Christ's mercy and love and forgiveness. And if he is not showing that love of Christ, then it's sometimes hard for people to uh, to know that Christ can be forgiving. And so I think it's incumbent upon priests always to to show that mercy and to be understanding. And you know what? Sometimes you forget. And even if you've been a Catholic your whole life, maybe you just blank out for a moment and forget a prayer. Forget. Right. <laughs> so it's it's not the end of the world. And ultimately, it is a sacrament of mercy. And so it's kind of ironic that he didn't show you mercy at the very end. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. Like I um, So I always chant the doxology through him, with him, and in him. But if I don't do that, because a few times either my voice is, is gone or if the whole mass is, is spoken, sometimes I'll chant it, sometimes I won't. But when I don't chant it, sometimes I like kind of forget it. Sure. And I've been a priest for three years. I've done this a bunch of times. And I had to look at the book, and it's awkward. I, I bring I bring our Eucharistic Lord down. I look at the book and, and do it again. So it happens even professional religious people sometimes. You know, oh, sure. it, it is tough because is it good to memorize the the contrition? Yeah. But the thing and the tricky thing with the confessional, it's the context, like you kind of said. Like, is this the right time? to say this you know when this person is so vulnerable so worried about how they're doing because people when we go into confessional it's just an average saturday for us right you know this is like we're used to it but a lot of times for people it's like the big anxiety of the day because no one likes talking about their own sinfulness right it's not fun to talk about how you've offended god and neighbor so in that vulnerable place i think you have to do everything as you can as a priest to not just be nice but to communicate the warmth and love and mercy of god because the sacrament's going to work if you do it, but they'll have a deeper experience if you do it in a loving, gentle way. Right. A good time to talk about active contrition would be like, or memorizing your prayers. That's a good topic for you know a part of a homily or a sermon or something like that. That's where you can be a little bit more forthright and aggressive. In the confessional, I think you have to be very gentle. Right. Two things I would add to that, too, yeah. real quickly. One, my initial reaction to hearing that was kind of like, oh, gosh, that priest. Um, but I, I guess we do in a very charitable way, you know, he should be charitable to you, but you know, priests are human too. And maybe it doesn't excuse, but maybe explains, maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe there was something else going on. So we try to be merciful to him as well. But on the other hand, um, if that's the biggest thing he complained about, then you're really not a big sinner. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so good for you. <laughs> no, that reminds me. Cause that's one of my greatest fears. Cause I am, I am, I mean, Father or uh, Father Dawson, you were with me in seminary for a number of years. Yes. You are very aware I can be a cranky and snippy person at times. What? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but always when I'm out in public and I'm doing the priest thing, I, in a special way, I try to you know uh, check myself to watch out for those emotions and things that are going on inside of me. I remember one day I had just gotten up from a nap, which is always danger time mm. to interact with Father Anthony, right? And it was a Sunday, so I said my masses, kind of tired, took a nap, getting ready to go to youth group. And we were there, and some of the kids were hanging out outside, and one of the parents, and she started talking to me about uh, how we were moving our youth group time from the evenings to right after Mass on Sunday. So our youth group would be from like 1 to 2 on Sundays. That way, like the whole family's there. You can do religious education. You can do youth group. You can do Mass. You can make it a Sunday at the parish more convenient overall. But she was saying, well, well what about dinner? What about family dinner? And I forgot that this is an Italian parish. A lot mm. of times... Uh, you have your like dinner meal, at least Italian Americans. Like whenever I have Christmas 
or Easter dinner, it'll be at like two or three o'clock. And then they have time to nap and hang out and do whatever else you want. Naps are very big in my family. Anyway, and she said this and I just looked at her and I said, no, it was just, it was not very pastoral. <laughs> and she kept like asking like questions. I just kind of gave her this blank stare because we're doing so much in the parish to try to figure out what's the right thing to do. And this like suggestion after we already made this big decision broke my brain a little bit. And then her husband was like, you know, you, you cast your vote. That's all you can do. So afterwards, it was like a few days later, I, I found the family at uh, at the parish picnic we were having. And I apologize. Like, I'm sorry. I was, it's not a bad idea. I was just kind of cranky that day. I'm sorry if I was short with you. I think one of the biggest things that we can do as priests is apologize. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to mess up. People are going to mess up. But to hear a priest especially apologize, I think, can be really good for building up trust in the community. You know, when we do something wrong, which is basically never because we're perfect. Right. Absolutely. But if, you know, by some fluke, you know, something happens. You know, right. Or you right. push us to it, lay people. <laughs> <laughs> See, now you're getting the spirit of the podcast. This is what I'm talking about. Excellent. <laughs> uh, okay. I think it's time, speaking of clericalism, to get into presbyteral exhortations. Mm. And now it is time for presbyteral Exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Oh. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh. It's oh. the best part. Oh. Yes. Yes. Quite. Yes. Quite. So, presbyteral exhortations. Yes. Unlike pontifical exhortations, we were just priests. It's a little bit more of the teaching section. But what I want to do here is I think it's interesting to talk to a priest who's been ordained for a month and a half, right? What's your perspective? What's going on? So maybe to start, so people can get to know you a little better, is can you give us uh, what was your life growing up and your vocation story? Sure. So my mom is Catholic. My dad is not Catholic. But all of my families on my mom's side, very big Irish Catholic family. And so there was never any question that we were Irish and Catholic, and that's really where I still find my identity. Mm-hmm. However, even though the faith was so important, my grandpa was born in Northern Ireland, my grandmother was born in Pittsburgh. All of her family's from Ireland. So not just being Irish, but in the north of Ireland, where being Catholic really was a big a big issue. And my grandpa had to come to America just to be able to, to make a life for himself. It's always been kind of the foundation of my identity. And so the faith has always been ingrained in my sisters and I to be very important. And yet, in spite of that, my mom, my grandparents, nobody ever pushed me to be a priest. You know, sometimes families really like kind of push and, you know, practically... Mom has her foot on like the back of her son and she's like kicking him into seminary. (laughs) Um, And so I'm grateful for the freedom to have been able to discern and just kind of go through seminary as proud as they were um, that I I always felt like I could leave if I ever needed to. Praise God, I never felt the Lord inviting me to to take some time away. But but just that strong uh, Irish Catholic background is kind of where I came from. And uh, just always taking the faith seriously as a kid on a little kid level. You know, I'm not saying I was, you know, uh, you know, translating Latin or anything like that when I was a kid, but that's kind of where it started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of where my priesthood, the the idea of priesthood started as a little kid and then just grew over time. Yeah, I think ha- I think there's basically three kind of avenues toward just conviction in the faith or your vocation. It's either someone kind of fell away from the faith, had a conversion experience, was never in the faith, had a conversion experience, but there's also a lot. And sometimes these people, I think, feel kind of bad because they don't have this like extravagant story with dramatic, like they can get struck by lightning or something. They just kind of like grew up 
in the faith. And yeah, you had to make at one point in time, you know, uh, a decision to that this is yours. But sometimes it happens kind of naturally and normally. And I think that should be, I mean, ideally, I think that should be kind of the norm because the faith is best passed on in a family context if you have that blessing. So it's kind of, I always find it good to hear that uh, basically God calls who he calls. He doesn't really care. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And uh, also just kind of the idea of being able to choose on my own and having the support of your family. I know like some guys don't always have their family support for one reason or another. Um, So just, you know, pray for all guys as they discern because everybody comes from a different background and some have a ton of support and some don't. Mm -hmm. And so just, you know, all the prayers are always welcome. Yeah. Uh, Was there, before you entered seminary, were there aspects of the priesthood that you found most attractive or what was most, uh, what drew you most to the vocation? Sure. Well, I remember becoming an altar boy after making my first Holy Communion. And that's when you're kind of actually like playing an active role in mass and still at a little kid level. But it's kind of that uh, at that point where I saw the priest and was like, wow, that's really cool. Not really understanding obviously what priesthood is all about, but just kind of on that, on that young kid level. And that grew with me and just kind of watching the priest and continuing to serve as I went through middle school and early high school. It was really kind of about mid high school when I decided I didn't want to be a priest. That's not what I wanted to do. Never stepped away from the church, never like lost that relationship with the church and with God, but just kind of charted a different path, I guess. But it was something that I felt like the Lord was always kind of continually knocking on my heart, if you will. And I kind of left the door closed. I never really invited him into the decision uh, of like, so I went to Pitt. I assumed I would, I studied political science. I was always really interested in politics. Thought I would, you know, get married, have a bunch of kids, get into politics and have a, a big career. But I never invited the Lord in and said like, hey, is this what you want me to do? I assumed that was, that I knew what I wanted, but the <laughs> Lord kept knocking, you know? Yeah. And so eventually he, uh, I opened the door and, you know, kind of handed things over to him. Yeah. God can be kind of annoying sometimes. Yeah, in a, in a, in a, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, I think I know what I need to be happy. And he's like, no, no, I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just, <yeah>. just listen. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I think maybe one of the things that's, one of the few things that's more misunderstood than the priesthood is probably seminary. So mm. this is a big open-ended question, but what was your experience of seminary? What, sem- what was seminary like for you? Sure. Well, so like Father Anthony, I started, you know, at St. Paul Seminary. Uh, I had finished college, so I was what's called a pre-theologian. So studying philosophy, which is great for some people, I, I didn't really like it at all. Uh, I thought it was terrible. It is as beautiful and powerful as it is, but it kind of lays that foundation to help you build the theology upon. But I hated the schoolwork part of it, but just like the fraternity, the brotherhood of being in a house where, I mean, the time I was there it was more or less 20 guys in a house. And so very close context. You really get to know guys. You can't become friends with everybody, but I, I made some very solid friendships there that some of those guys are priests. Some of those guys are almost priests. A few of those guys are married and have kids. But it's it's a it's a relationship rooted in something far deeper than we go to the same school where we have similar interests. But it's rooted in Christ. So I love that. I loved you know moving on to theological college and Catholic university, where there was a similar community, bigger for sure, and from different backgrounds, different dioceses. But just um, it was good. I, I've never considered myself the academic type. I, I did well enough in school to to get through and everything. But just the opportunity to grow and become the man that God called me and invites me to be. And that doesn't end with seminary, but it's certainly the journey really got kicked into high gear uh, those years at St. Paul's and then at, uh, at Theological College. Yeah, so each diocese does things a little different. Here in Pittsburgh, we have a minor seminary 
uh, that is just for Pittsburgh guys. So if you're in that house, it's just Pittsburgh guys. I think when I was there, there may be like 12. When you were there, there were more, more Something like, like 18 maybe. Yeah, so a bigger house for us. And then we would go to school at Duquesne University. Right. And then after you do whatever studies you need to do, I had to do four years of philosophy. You had to do two because you already had your degree. You go on to major theology. And there's a big change in that. You kind of move a little bit more away from the discernment. Think you're still discerning, but things have been confirmed enough where you're leaning more into the kind of training and preparing mode. And this is also where you learn uh, the theology, right? Mm -hmm. So what were the big differences between your first two years and your last four years? Sure. I mean, I think obviously uh, going from a much smaller house and kind of still being in Pittsburgh, still being you know, somewhat close to what I've known. I, I grew up in the suburbs north of Pittsburgh, and so it's home. Going to D.C., which is just not only taking your vocational discernment to a new level, but being in a new city, being at a, a pretty prestigious university, Catholic university, it kind of caused me to really dig deep and make sure that this is what the Lord wanted. I can remember when I was getting ready to leave St. Paul's to move on to theology, and uh, a priest said to me, not in a mercenary. It's obviously not about money, but he said, like, do you understand how much money? And I can't remember the figure now, but like how much money it's going to cost to educate you. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not not that that was his only concern, but just to kind of put it like, are you worth that investment? Mm. And in humility, you know, it caused me really to discern, like, am I worth the hard earned money of the people that that give in the, in our diocese? And so I, I really believe then and, you know, praise God, it, it ended up being true that uh, the Lord was inviting me to to spend that money and hopefully, hopefully wisely. Uh, but yeah, I guess the big difference would be going from, um, I'm thinking I'm pretty sure, or I'm thinking about seminary. I'm thinking about priesthood. I think this could be for me to really, by the time I got to TC, knowing this is what God wanted and, uh, just a matter of kind of preparing and, and letting go of what I need to let go of and really just kind of grow and become the man and ultimately the deacon and then priest that, uh, that I was born, born to be. Yeah. So, I think in the back, I assume in the background in, of your life, definitely in the background of my life, is 2002, the priest scandal. Sure. So that was like, you were aware of that when you entered seminary. But as we know, what last summer, was it just last summer? My goodness. Uh, the scandal kind of broke anew again. And we were kind of, you know, our diocese kind of at the center of it with the PA grand jury report. Absolutely. So you're in seminary. You hear about this. What are your reactions? What are you and the other guys thinking and feeling? Yeah, I mean, I can remember, so the grand jury report came out on uh, August 14th last year, 2018. That, you know, that coming weekend would be my last weekend at the parish, St. Anne's and St. Winifred down in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, uh, before I went back to seminary for my last year. And so, because it was my last weekend, I was scheduled to preach. And um, yeah, and so, and that was long before we knew when the report was going to come out. And so, Father Mike, who's an awesome priest, and he was, he's the pastor he was at the other parish, just based on, you know, kind of how on mission went. He had that parish a little sooner than everybody else, but he needed to be there. And so I was up there with a retired priest at St. Anne's preaching. And as I was preparing that homily, just before the Blessed Sacrament, just saying like, Lord, speak to me and speak through me, you know. And I, I mean, I wasn't a, their pastor. I wasn't even a priest at that time. But just um, really felt like, a, I guess, a wounded healer is kind of the image that kept coming to me because... It's not as though, and sometimes people ask us, I'm sure they ask Father Anthony, like, what do you think about this? Well, I think the same thing you do. I'm, I mean, I'm very wounded. I'm very upset. I'm very hurt. All those emotions. And, and I didn't know really any of those priests, but a lot of people did know them and they're 
their trust as well as, you know, far more, you know, things were violated. But I tried to keep it in balance that, yeah, this is horrible and we can't just ignore it. We can't pretend like this isn't the case. But I also just remembered and tried to preach in that homily that, you know, the Lord Jesus, when he carried his cross, his body was bloody and bruised and dirty because of what people had done to him, but it didn't change who he was. And Mm. that's like the church, you know, it's kind of ugly and dirty and and bloody sometimes because of what human beings, you know, in our weakness can do, what particular, you know, people have done, but it doesn't change who the church is. And so it was powerful for me knowing like going into my last year of seminary and then getting ready to start my first year of priesthood that I don't want the devil to rob me of my joy. You know, he, the devil's robbed a lot of people through wicked deeds done within the church. I don't want him to rob myself or the guys around me of the joy of priesthood, of getting close to priesthood, of finally getting ready to be ordained. And so it was a great grace and a great peace to be able to uh, to bring that before the Lord in the mm-hmm. Blessed Sacrament and just to allow him to embrace me as we all need him to kind of give us that, you know, that, that hug of love uh, that we know is there, but sometimes we... We forget about it, yeah. and so it was a beautiful, a beautiful gift. So, what was what was that last year like? What was um, with all that going on? Uh, I'm sure guys were talking about it in the house. What was like the attitude of the house after all that? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, that was a big uh, theme that the faculty, you know, in conferences and, and different things talked about. Washington D.C. was also a particular place of uh, difficulty, sure, yeah, if you will, last year, and so just kind of the D.C. guys and us Pittsburgh guys in a particular way kind of bonded Mm. uh, more so than usual just because of some of the common ground there. But uh, in my sense, it was there were a lot of guys that were really hurt, really upset. I mean, everybody was, but I think guys were kind of like what I said was just being able to not compartmentalize it, but to see it as it is and to see it in the context of um, we have to be better and not saying like, oh, this is terrible. I don't want to be part of that group. Because a lot of times people look at any priest and just make terrible assumptions, which is ridiculous. But when people are hurt, sometimes logic and reason doesn't always make it into the conversation. But just saying, like, we really need to commit ourselves to being better, to to taking the church into the future and helping people eventually to start healing and making sense and, and ultimately just receiving again the love of God that in some ways has been taken away from some folks. Yeah. And another question as far as getting ready for ordination, our diocese, a lot of, a lot of dioceses in the, uh, on the East Coast are experiencing, the, are experiencing this, but I think us in a particular way with our on-mission movement, where we're going from something like 180 parishes to, to 60. So you're aware of this going on, that you're aware this is going on while you're in seminary, and you get thrown into one of the more difficult assignments not that the people are more difficult not that, but it's just taking seven parishes and making it one and this is what you're getting into uh you didn't know that at the time but now you know that now what were you thinking what were other guys thinking about like jumping into a diocese that's in this huge transition sure yeah i mean that was also a big thing that kind of colored our uh last year of seminary especially with all of the changes but i can remember a few years ago on pastoral year when sort of the beginning of on mission was being laid out and some of the stark facts and figures and predictions were being uh, presented to us. And I can remember driving home after that meeting and saying to a priest, um, you know, in spite of all that, I know I want to be a priest and I know I want to be a priest in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And he kind of looked at me 
and smiled and he said, well, maybe you're dumb. (laughs) Maybe maybe you're naive. He said, but I think that's pretty powerful and and a big affirmation of that you're where you need to be because there's no diocese in the world that doesn't have problems, that doesn't have challenges. And these are the particular ones that the Diocese of Pittsburgh is facing. And yeah, in some ways, it thinks you think like kind of the perfect storm of both the grand jury report and on mission. Um, but it's an exciting time. I mean, it's certainly can be overwhelming and, and whatnot, but it's a blessed time. And I'm, I'm humbled and honored and um, surprised in some ways, kind of questioning why God would call me in a particular way. I think every priest knows other men or, or even other priests that are holier, smarter, more capable, et cetera. Than but the, enough about me. Than them. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Anthony is a great guy. Um, he'll tell you. But anyway. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, and so I, I'm just humbled that the Lord, you know, saw the loaves and the fish that I'm able to to bring forward. And um, so far, and, and I, I trust going forward in my life and my priesthood that he'll make that enough. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about your ordination day. Okay. What were you feeling the day before, during, day after. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so I mean, that, that week leading up, um, you know, we're on retreat at the seminary, so it's an opportunity for, um, so I was ordained with three other guys, three guys that I've spent so much time with over the years, and we've just become so close. And so uh, it was a beautiful moment for us to re- kind of retreat from the world um, for those few days, return to sort of where everything started, back to St. Paul's, and uh, just kind of dig dig into, you know, or I guess just kind of open our hearts to receive all the grace that the Lord wanted to pour in. I don't know. A lot of people ask me, especially like the morning of like, are you nervous? And fortunately, like we had a great rehearsal. And so I kind of knew in my mind what was going on. Yeah. But I, I think, and I'm not saying like, oh, I'm so tough and I wasn't nervous, but I just felt like I wanted this for so long mm-hmm. and this is really where God wants me to be. And so I was able to just kind of enter into the mass. And I, I mean, there are some, some parts of it that were a blur, uh, I guess, but for the most part, I could just pray it and enjoy it and just kind of, to, in some ways, the Lord was able to lift, you know, would lift the veil. So I was able to see, you know, some of the profundity of what was happening. Was there a particular moment in the ordinary, in the ordination ceremony that stuck out to you? That- yeah, I mean, I think obviously, so obviously kind of the, the synchronon of the ordination, right, is the bishop laying his hands on, uh, you know, on the guy's head. And so after the bishop removed his hands and I kind of stood up, I just remember like kind of taking a deep breath and just saying like, <laughs> wow, like a priest forever, you know? Yeah, and yeah. it's like, cause I mean, all the, all the moments in the rite are so powerful. And of course, having my hands anointed, just kind of set aside. I remember looking at my hands, like over the course of years, just thinking like one day, praise God, please God, these will be consecrated. And then afterwards, after they were just kind of seeing. So I, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a trite answer, but like no, the, not at all. the laying beautiful. on of hands and the consecration. I'm getting emotional. Like, yeah. No kidding. It's <laughs> so it's good stuff. Okay. I recommend it. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would get ordained again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, where did you do your first Mass, and what was that experience like? Sure. So uh, so my I grew up at St. Victor's in Bairdford, kind of in the suburbs up uh, northern Allegheny County, Westier Township. So kind of a small place, kind of tucked away. The bishops always have trouble finding it when they come for confirmation. So. <laughs> but I grew up there. I was baptized there. All my sacraments. Was an altar boy there for for, like, so many years. And so there was no no other place, you know. Yeah. And for years, I the people of St. Victor's and then later with the grouping in with Transfiguration down the road have been tremendously kind and supportive, both financially but especially spiritually. And so just coming back there as a native son and uh, the first uh, first son of that parish to be a priest oh, yeah. was just, yeah, a particular honor. And um, 
you know, just hopefully, you know, just being able to 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 do proud the the uh, the parish of Saint Victor's. So yeah. How much did you practice for your first mass? How ready did you feel? Um, I, I felt pretty good, I guess. It's kind of one of those things where it's so different practicing like in a chapel by yourself or with one or two guys like kind of helping you out and then uh or in my room um at my desk and actually having people there yeah yeah yeah. and it actually being real (laughs) (laughs) um so so very very different but i felt like by the time i got there um i'm not like i like to have things kind of laid out but i'm not like a point bullet point by bullet point kind of guy and so i tried as best i could maybe this is just an excuse for a lack of planning but i just kind of let the holy (laughs) spirit take you know take it over and so it all went very well just thankful for the the guys around me pushing me in the right direction and mm-hmm. telling me what to do. But it was it was very beautiful. Did you preach your first mass or someone did someone else? Because there's a tradition that some people follow, some people don't, that they'll invite someone to preach their first mass because with everything going on, the profundity of the moment, uh, have someone else preach. Or some people preach for their own first mass because they have a certain idea of what they want to be said for the first mass. So what did you decide to do? So I, I chose uh, somebody else to preach. So... My first, after my first and second year at St. Paul Seminary, I worked at St. John and Paul Parish, uh, where Father Anthony, you know, grew up. So Father uh, Joseph McCaffrey was the pastor there, and now he's the pastor of, you know, of me. Yeah. (laughs) And so he's, uh, so he, just hearing him preach when I would go to daily mass, and over the course of years, we became friends. And I I can remember back in those days when I was still at St. Paul's thinking, like, he's just such a good preacher and just such a sincere man. And I said unless anything changes, like I want him to preach at my first mass. Yeah. And then like all those years later, like I asked him last summer when I was still a deacon and he was just, you know, very honored and, and whatnot. And so it was, it was a beautiful moment. It was great though. During his homily, he mentioned, cause he knew, you know, we had been friends, but he didn't realize, you know, when he was preparing the homily that I was going to be working with him. Oh, right. So in a lot of dioceses, the men being ordained, they'll know what their first assignment is. Oh, yes. Not so for us. Not so. For us, we find out when everyone else finds out. At the end of your ordination, the bishop will hand you your envelope saying you can do priestlings in the diocese, Mm -hmm. and he'll tell you your first assignment. So everyone finds out in that moment, which is a little crazy, but I'll keep my commentary for that for later. Sure, sure, sure. And so he didn't realize that you were going to be assigned to him, and he finds out. Correct. Yeah, so we found out at the same time at the ordination mass. And it was great because he was like at the end of the pew where like the priest section was. So I had a perfect view of him. And so we were just grinning like ear to ear. <laughs> and it was cool. it was just awesome. But so the next day at my first mass, you know, he's preaching his homily and he's saying, you know, now I'm kind of confused because and I thought this was a great line, uh, but I'm kind of confused because, you know, 24 hours ago, Bishop Zubik named me your boss, your pastor. But here I am at your first mass and I'm working for you. <laughs> nice. You know, so it was very well played. And, and um you know, but it was it was just an honor because he's a priest, and I you know know many priests that um, have been tremendously supportive. But you know, Father Mac in a particular way, and so to be working with him and then reconnecting with Father Anthony has been a really blessing. I mean, I'm sure wherever I would have ended up, yeah. <laughs> and so no, but it is good. I mean, I I've I've always liked Father Anthony, and so I'm glad to to be working with them and and all that stuff and. You need to stop yeah. complimenting me. Normally, well, the- I'm expecting I'm expecting the payment that you promised for that. So. <laughs> There's Norm- a, sec- a second collection this weekend. No, 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 no. You can't pull you can't pull a veil back that much. It oh, okay. whole podcast. oh well, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> normally, the Canadian that's on no, this podcast no. just rips me to shreds. Oh, every I see. Moment. see. No, no. I, I really like Father Anthony. I, <laughs> I can't really read your handwriting on the rest of the note though. But so, <laughs> okay, so you've been a priest for about a month and a half. First impressions. Sure. Yeah, I mean. 
I don't know. It's like a lot of people have asked me like, oh, do you feel different uh, being a priest? And it's like, it's kind of a yes and no. It's kind of a both and sort of deal. In some ways, it's like your birthday when people are like, oh, do you feel older? It's like, <laughs> no, I, not really. <laughs> um, and I kind of, because in some ways I do feel, you know, very different. I, I understand the profundity of that ontological change and that I'm conformed to Christ and able to bring the sacraments. But at the same time, in a strange way, I feel very much the same because I, you know, I believe that I'm the man that God called. And so he doesn't like, he radically changes you, yes, but at the same time, he doesn't radically change you, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Just because he calls each of us as an individual and he doesn't radically like obliterate us to make something different, you know? And so it's, you know, with my particular personality and whatever. And so I, I, it's been good. I, I, I've kind of been struck by how easy mass is. Like it was so, it was so like nerve, nerve wracking when I'm practicing, but then like now that I've done it and I know like what comes next and what ribbon to pull, it's like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. And and even funerals or even like confessions, like you just kind of handle it and just sort of trying to give the advice that I think the Lord would, would have, or what I would like to receive if I was on the other end of sure. confession or something. So, yeah, let's get into that a little bit more. So obviously without details, sure. What was your experience kind of hearing first confessions for you? Yeah. 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 Well, for years, I mean, obviously, you know, priests hear tons of confessions. And so that's something I've always looked forward to and having walked out of confession so many times, just having really felt so grace filled that I, I long to be on the other side of that. And so now that I can, sit on the other side of that uh, confessional. It's just been been powerful the way that people just humbly come before the Lord and just, you know, and I'm a lot younger than some people that come to confession, but just trusting that um, that the Lord has mercy for them and that there's grace that they need and that they want, and they're willing to, you know, admit, you know, f- you know uh, falling and, and failing sometimes, but just the trust that they have that the Lord is going to forgive them and that they can keep picking up and going. It's It's been striking to me just because when you go to confession, you only know your own confession. But yeah. here in confessions, you just see how sin wounds people, but the Lord binds those wounds. Yeah. Okay, so wrap things up. What's been the biggest joy so far? The biggest difficulty so far? And has there been any surprises so far? Sure, sure, sure. So my biggest joy, I mean, just like celebrating Mass, my first Mass, but even like on my day off, like I'll go home. And I'll go to my grandparents' house and, uh, you know, just have mass with my grandpa. And he's 90 and he's just so proud. And um, my grandmother passed away recently. And so just to kind of be there and just to, to pray with him. And he's just so proud, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so just being able to celebrate not a big high, you know, mass in a fancy place, but just, you know, a simple, very low mass. And, you know, uh, at my grandparents' house is a powerful thing. And to know that um, it's the same Eucharist, you know, mm-hmm. no matter how uh, how big or small the uh, the pomp and circumstance might be. Um, the most difficult thing, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I can really say, I haven't had anything too difficult. I mean, I know that is obviously part of the deal, but um, just I've only administered the last rites once since being a priest, and I know those moments will come. But just being with that family, and the man was very near the end of his life and um, just being there for those people, just kind of hoping that I would say the right things and not just sacramentally the right things, but also just in the bit of comfort that you try to offer the family. Um, It was difficult, but, but beautiful Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of surprises. um, I don't know. I I guess you're in seminary for so long and I've always kind of wondered like, 
I think I'm pretty sure I want to be a priest. I know I want to be a priest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you get to that point, and then they're like, "Can I actually cut cut it? And like, yeah. can I do being a priest?" <laughs> and the jury's still out, I guess, for the most part. But at least in the first, you know, uh, month and a half, two months, um, the Lord has filled in the gaps, and so just kind of, I guess, I'm always sort of surprised, not even just as a priest, but the way that the Lord gives us what we need. And so, um, I think it's beautiful to always be surprised by what the Lord has for us. So. Awesome. Any final yeah. words for the people? Yeah, thank you for listening. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. You did great. You yeah, did great. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, good, See, good to be with you. This is what happens when Father Harrison needs a guest to fill in for Clerically Speaking, he gets a lay person. But when Father Anthony uh, needs a guest, he gets a fellow cleric. Lay, lay people are great too. I mean, but. Okay, fine. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies, too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me at Father Chirapa on Twitter. You can't find Father Brendan because he's busy doing all the priest work while I'm tweeting. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. The never-ending sticker saga will be coming to a close soon. I know we promised you stickers for a long time. We have them. We should mail them out by the end of August. I'm already copy and pasting the addresses that we need. It's going to happen. Patience is a virtue. God bless.